Welcome to Crime and Beauty, the true crime podcast that ends in something beautiful. I'm your host, Megan Freeman. On Crime and Beauty, we cover topics that some may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. daughter, Lauren Spear, disappeared on June 3, 2011. Every time we write, think, or utter those words, we are riveted back to the afternoon we received the phone call about her disappearance. It is impossible to explain, as we continue to search for Lauren, what the experience of having a missing child is like. There is no explanation for why this has happened. Imagine learning one of the most important people in your world has disappeared, and there is not enough information available from friends and acquaintances to find them. There is no reason to think the people Lauren was last with wouldn't do everything in their power to help us find her. But alas, there is a deafening silence. That silence compounds our frustration, our desperation, and our grief in not having found Lauren. It threatens to be our undoing, but make no mistake, we will never give up. Just as someone in your life is special to you, be it a child, friend, or family member, Lauren is special to us. As the new school year begins, we hope and pray that more information about Lauren's disappearance will be forthcoming. We remain in Bloomington for one purpose, to find Lauren. Rob and Charlene Spear This is the introduction to findlauren.com. Lauren has been missing since early Friday morning, June 3rd, 2011, and was last seen on 11th Street and College Avenue in Bloomington, Indiana, one block away from my apartment at the time. Her whereabouts are a mystery to this day. As you guys can tell, today's subject is the disappearance of Lauren Spear. I chose this case because as I just mentioned, My alma mater was also Indiana University, and I lived very close, just a block away from where she was last seen alive. Nobody knows where she is now. And before we get into the story and the theories about her disappearance, I wanted to cover the sources that I used for this episode. One article I used was in the Indiana Daily Student, which was written by Biz Carson and published on March 1st, 2012. It's called Lauren Spear, She's Not a Poster, She's a Person, a portrait of the young woman who most people know only as a face on a poster. I also relied on ABC News' article that was published on June 24, 2016 by Brian Ross and Brian Epstein called Five Years After She Vanished, New Hope in the Lauren Spear Case. I also used an article by Fox 59 which was published by Matt Adams on January 29, 2016. Timeline, Disappearance of IU Student Lauren Spear. And for my original quote starting the episode, findlauren.com, I also used the Facebook page, Official Lauren Spear Updates from Her Family, and good old Wikipedia. Now let's get into Lauren's life. Lauren Spear was born on January 17, 1991, to Charlene and Robert Spear. 
Her father was an accountant, and she grew up in Scarsdale, New York, an affluent town in lower Westchester County. As a child, she wanted a dog but had to settle for a pet fish, which she named Dory, I assume after the Finding Nemo character. She was also an avid athlete, participating in soccer and lacrosse. Her father called her a tiger of a sweeper, and oddly enough, this was the same position I played in soccer. And you definitely need to have that tiger mentality, no doubt. She attended Edgemont High School, where she was invited to join the varsity lacrosse team. But unfortunately, she was diagnosed with long QT syndrome her freshman year and had to drop the sport. Now, long QT syndrome is a condition in which repolarization of the heart after a heartbeat is affected. So this results in an increased risk of an irregular heartbeat, which can result in fainting, drowning, seizures, or even sudden death. These episodes could be triggered by exercise or stress. Though her dad recalled her being really crushed, Lauren shifted gears and enrolled in an AP art class, as she'd always been interested in fashion and art. Once again, this really resonates with me, as it closely paralleled my own high school experience. Despite my obsession with playing sports for many, many years, I tore my ACL in preseason basketball, which effectively ended my athletics, I say in quotes, career. And I also decided to focus on more creative pursuits and participated in musical theater. It's about this time that I also became more interested in fashion and beauty. So in a lot of ways, I can imagine what this reinvention of herself must have felt like. On Saturdays during her senior year, she would take a train to the city to take classes at the Fashion Institute of Technology. In 2009, she graduated from Edgemont and enrolled at Indiana University, where she studied textiles and merchandising. Lauren was active in the Jewish community at IU and spent the previous spring break planting trees in Israel on behalf of the Jewish National Fund. She apparently loved to eat, despite her small frame. She loved dominoes, butches, and baked cookies. Her favorite show was Sex in the City. She decorated her bedroom with a large Urban Outfitters tapestry of Ganesha, the Hindu deity who symbolizes wisdom and success. She had Buddha sculptures and Hello Kitty paraphernalia around her room and would place small bowls of chocolates and mini M&Ms throughout the apartment. Her room was always messy and covered in clothes. Being a fashionista that she was, and a typical college student, she'd change outfits last minute. Lauren had been dating her high school boyfriend and fellow Indiana University student Jesse Wolfe. She had met Jesse and another friend and future IU student, Jay Rosenbaum, years earlier at Camp Tawanda, a summer camp in the mountain town of Honesdale, Pennsylvania. It was this summer camp that formed her circle of friends at IU. At the time of her disappearance, she was supposed to go back home to Scarsdale to intern with Anthropology, which is an awesome retail store selling women's clothing and household items. She would have also been alongside her friends as she started her junior year at IU. She wanted to study abroad at some point with her best friends. They were thinking about Italy, but they hadn't decided yet. She would have celebrated her 21st birthday the following year. On the evening of Thursday, June 2, 2011, Lauren was spotted by a surveillance camera in her apartment complex called Smallwood Plaza. She was heading out for the night and appeared smiley and healthy. Now I want to pause here to talk about Smallwood Plaza. I had a few friends that lived there. It had the reputation of being the preferred off-campus housing for rich East Coasters that used designer drugs and wore designer clothing. 
This was a few blocks south of my old apartment building called Tenton College, aptly named for the intersection it was located at. Both Tenton College and Smallwood were very close to Kilroy's sports bar, one of two top party bars in Bloomington, especially for students. That evening, she met up with several friends. Her boyfriend, Jesse, stayed in, but the couple texted back and forth until he went to bed. Later on, no witnesses reported seeing him out that night, which corroborated his statement that he was home watching the NBA Finals, which ended just before midnight. According to his roommate, he went to bed around 2.30 a.m. By midnight, Lauren was extremely intoxicated, according to several witness statements. She had also spent the majority of her evening with a student named Corey Rossman, whom she had met a few weeks earlier at the Indy 500. Her friends and Wolf later told police that she used drugs in addition to alcohol on the night leading up to her disappearance. Wolf's mother alleged that Lauren was actually asked to leave that summer camp where she'd met her son and Rosenbaum years earlier because of drug use. Quote, this poor little girl is not with us today because of her drug abuse. Jay Rosenbaum told investigators that Lauren consumed alcohol, snorted cocaine, and crushed up Klonopin tablets that evening. Bo Deedle, a private investigator later hired by the Spear family, cited the prevalence of drug use on the IU campus, saying, quote, every kid's buying pot, cocaine, drinking, pills. On September 2, 2010, nine months before her disappearance, Lauren was actually arrested on charges of public intoxication and illegal consumption. That being said, I don't think that that's a terribly uncommon situation. I mean, granted, for her to have been arrested, not ideal, but it happened. I'm not condoning her behavior, but I also don't want to sit here and judge because it was not terribly uncommon. Also, after her disappearance, police did find a small amount of cocaine in her room. And despite what Bodiedel said, it was not every kid, but there really were quite a few that dabbled in the drug scene, some more than others. Her mother, Charlene, admitted that she really didn't realize the extent of it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down a little bit more of the timeline. So after midnight, on Friday, June 3rd at 12.30 a.m., Lauren left her apartment with a friend named David Roan. The pair went to Jay Rosenbaum's apartment, and that's where she met up with Corey Rossman, who was Rosenbaum's neighbor, according to witnesses. She entered Kilroy's sports bar, or more commonly known as sports, on campus at around 1.46 a.m. She and Corey Rossman left the bar not quite an hour later at 2.27 a.m. She was barefoot and left her cell phone at the bar. They entered her apartment three minutes later. A passerby named Zach Oakes noticed her level of inebriation and asked if she was okay. They got to the fifth floor of Smallwood, where Lauren's apartment was, where they ran into four male students in the hallway. According to an ABC investigator, they didn't like the way that Rossman was handling Lauren. Rossman said something that compelled one of the students to punch him in the face, which knocked him down. He was quite intoxicated as well. At 2.48 a.m., after she left the apartments, Lauren entered an alley that runs between College Avenue and Morton Street. Security cameras mounted on nearby apartments show her exit the alley at about 2.51 a.m. and walk toward an empty lot. Her keys and purse were later found along this route. Shortly thereafter, Lauren and Rossman arrived at his apartment. Rossman lived at 11th and Morton, which was even more luxurious and expensive than Smallwood. Michael Beth, Rossman's roommate, was at the apartment. 
As I mentioned, Rossman himself was extremely intoxicated and stumbling. He vomited on the carpet on the way upstairs, and so Beth stated that he escorted Rossman to bed. He then tried to persuade Lauren to sleep over for her own safety, but he claimed that she wanted to return to her own apartment. At 3.30 a.m., Beth said that he phoned his neighbor, Rosenbaum, wanting him to take care of Lauren. Beth said that Lauren was attempting to get Beth to drink with her at her own apartment. She eventually went to Rosenbaum's apartment, where he observed a bruise under her eye, presumably sustained in a fall earlier that evening. She told him she didn't know how she got the bruise. Two calls were placed from Rosenbaum's phone shortly before she was reported to have left. Rosenbaum said that Lauren placed both calls, one to Roan and one to another friend. Neither picked up and no messages were left. At 4.30 a.m., Rosenbaum reports that Lauren left the apartment. This is the last reported sighting of her. He reported last seeing Lauren at the intersection of 11th Street and College Avenue headed south on college. She was last seen barefoot, wearing black leggings and a white shirt. Several hours later that morning, her boyfriend Jesse Wolf sent Lauren a text. When he received a reply, it was not from Lauren, but rather an employee at Carroy's sports bar. At this point, he reported her missing. Little did her parents know that they would soon be packing Lauren's things into 19 boxes, which were soon after stacked in their family home. I remember the posters. They were everywhere on campus and they were being circulated on social media. I actually remember one of the first high-profile retweets about the case came from actor Will Arnett. It's implanted in my brain forever. At that point, it just struck me how dire, tragic, and major this was. I think myself and many others expected her to, to show up somewhere, but she never did. In March of 2012, Charlene told the Indiana Daily Student that, quote, as we look at Lauren's posters, to us, that's an abstract. It's not who she is. She's not a poster. She's a person. Let's face it, most college kids party, and most make decisions that can put them in danger without intending to. From my own experiences, Bloomington was such a wonderful college campus, and in many ways, it felt very insulated and safe. This would most certainly have been accentuated if you had a solid friend group, which it sounds like Lauren did. Plus, as a young adult, one often feels invincible and that nothing would ever happen to you. I walked home a few times when I probably shouldn't have. Lyfts and Uber were not around at the time. It was great to take a cab home, but oftentimes the bars were so close to where you live that it wasn't a big deal to walk by yourself, but it really was. It could have been anyone. Also, I want to point out that when she was walking to sports from Smallwood, that was maybe three minutes. 11th and Morton, which was Rosenbaum and Rossman's apartment building, was also extremely close by as well. And she was inebriated. And again, I want to be clear that I'm not judging her. We all want to be accepted and feel cool when we're younger. As we age, that becomes less of a priority. At IU, it was very hard to turn down people proposing to go out. This was the type of school where you could easily find people to go out with seven nights a week. It is unfortunate that she became involved in the drug scene more heavily while at school, but frankly, where she lived, it would have been difficult to avoid. Drugs were pretty much everywhere, but especially at Smallwood. And it also sounds like the friends she hung out with participated as well. Shortly after her disappearance, volunteers come through remote parts of Monroe County in search of Lauren, to no avail. 
I remember the feeling of dread on campus as time passed and she was still missing. Even returning home to the Chicago suburbs that summer, my mind would often drift back to Lauren, wondering where she was. As time went by, people began to talk and speculate more and more on what happened to Lauren. Her parents have stated that they believe her daughter is dead, and unfortunately, I'm inclined to agree. However, they also believe she may have been drugged at the bar. This could be true, but again, based on witness statements, particularly Rosenbaum's assertion that she had imbibed great amounts of alcohol, cocaine, and clonopin, and the fact that she was 4'11 and weighed 90 pounds, it may, may not be the case that she was drugged, though it is possible. Either way, she was extremely intoxicated. The Spear family has voiced suspicions about the men she was with that evening, as well as her boyfriend, Jesse Wolf. They believe they know more than what they've told police so far. But the men responded that they have taken privately administered polygraphs, as well as one from the FBI. They say that they retained lawyers because they don't trust the Bloomington police. Rob Spear said that this created a wall of access for the family. And Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse, initially helped with the searches for the first couple of days, but then his parents came and took him away. Police took a DNA sample from Corey Rossman, and he denied involvement early on, saying, quote, I was not the last person with her, and that's all I can say. I'm sorry. But I just hope they find her as soon as possible, and I'm praying for her and her family. But Rossman was the one friend who refused to talk to the Spears or their private investigators. He also claimed to have lost his memory after being punched in Smallwood. Rob thinks it's a case of self-preservation. It's an understandable human condition. I'm not sure of anything, but what I do know is that there's been a complete lack of cooperation and he was the person who spent the most time with Lauren in the last hours of her being seen. On May 23rd, Rossman claimed her parents were harassing him about their daughter's disappearance and what happened on that night, according to a report in a New York newspaper. And still, he maintained that he did nothing wrong. But a month later, Lauren's parents filed a civil lawsuit against him, Jay Rosenbaum, and Michael Beth. The suit accused the men of negligence, alleging that Rossman and Rosenbaum supplied Spear with the alcohol after she was already visibly intoxicated and then neglected to assure she returned safely to her apartment, which likely led to her death. The family has stated that they hope the lawsuit will lead to the men's coming forward with more information about what occurred that night. I truly don't think it was a random abduction. I think that somebody that Lauren knew was responsible for the events of that evening. That's what her mother said. And as part of the suit, they subpoenaed private cell phone and academic records spanning 134 days before and after the night she disappeared, a move that the men called a, quote, fishing expedition. But still, none of them were named as suspects in her disappearance. And in 2013, federal judge Tanya Walton Pratt dismissed the suit against Beth, ruling he had no duty to care for Lauren. And in 2014, she dismissed the suit against the other two, stating, quote, Unfortunately, there could be any number of theories as to what happened to Lauren and what, if any, injuries she may have sustained. Without evidence to prove these theories, it would be impossible for a jury to determine if whatever happened to Spear was a natural and probable consequence of her intoxication without any other intervening acts that would break the casual chain. Lauren's parents have appealed the ruling, and lawyers for the men have stated that their clients have cooperated fully with police and the private investigators hired by Lauren's family, and that all of them have passed private polygraphs. 
Now that's so odd to me though, because what what good is a private polygraph, right? Also, polygraphs are not a great barometer for innocence or guilt. I mean, sometimes it can be a helpful tool, but that certainly shouldn't be a huge factor in determining whether or not they know something or they don't. In August 2011, police conducted a nine-day search of the Sycamore Ridge landfill in Pimento, just south of Terre Haute, for clues in the disappearance. The landfill is where trash from Bloomington is hauled after a stop at a transfer station. The Bloomington Police Department, as well as the Indiana University Police Department and the FBI, all took part in the search. But by mid-2013, after having received over 3,000 tips on her disappearance, there was still no sign of Lauren. In April 2015, the Bloomington police announced they were investigating a possible link between Lauren's disappearance and the tragic murder of another IU student, Hannah Wilson, who was a senior and a member of the Gamma Phi Beta sorority. Wilson went missing on April 24, 2015, after visiting Kilroy's sports bar, the same bar that Lauren had visited the night she disappeared. Wilson was last seen getting into a taxi in front of the bar and driving away. Her body was found the next morning in Brown County. A local man named Daniel Messel was arrested for the murder after his cell phone was discovered near the body. Lauren's parents have previously stated that they do not believe her disappearance was a random abduction. And in July 2015, the Spears PI, Bo Deedle, concluded that the two cases were unrelated and any similarities between the two cases were coincidental. On January 28, 2016, the FBI conducted a raid of a home in Martinsville, approximately 20 miles north of Bloomington. And I will be honest, the only thing I really knew about Martinsville was that there were rumors that it harbored neo-Nazis. This raid was connected to a man suspected of exposing himself to numerous women. The FBI and other police agencies converged on the home, with Bloomington police confirmed that they were involved with the search. Investigators sifted dirt removed from a barn near the property after cadaver dogs finished their work. The searchers would not discuss whether anything significant was found. The truck may be connected to 35-year-old Justin Wagers, who lived there with his mother and stepfather until his last arrest. And on the night Lauren disappeared, police said a white truck was spotted on surveillance footage not far from where she was last seen. An ABC News reporter, Brad Garrett, discovered an ex-convict, James McLish, was just released from prison for assaulting his ex-wife at the time and drove a similar white truck. He was living in a halfway house about 10 minutes from where Lauren disappeared. Garrett said a woman from McLish's past reached out and tipped them off. She alleged that McLish had killed Lauren and then buried her on a farm in southern Indiana. When Garrett approached McLish earlier this year, he did agree to take a lie detector test that was administered by a veteran polygraph examiner, Ralph Neves, who was a former NYPD detective. When it came to questions about Lauren, he stuck to his denials. He answered calmly and clearly and said that he had nothing to do with her disappearance. And according to Neves, he appeared to be telling the truth. When the test was complete, he said, quote, I wish you guys the best of luck. I do. Another lead came from a notorious motorcycle gang called the Sons of Silence. The alleged link to the Spear case came in the form of tips about a former member of the group, Robert Strange, who goes by the name of Bo Dean? Who knows? Strange doesn't have a criminal record, but he was well known to authorities. According to Garrett, he had a reputation for being an enforcer. When 2020 approached him to question him about Lauren, he shielded his face from the camera with his hand and said that he had nothing to do with it. Quote, I don't even know the broad. I told you that. 
There ain't nobody here, and I ain't never seen the broad, never been around her. Unfortunately, this did not pan out either. Through FineLorn.com, the Spears received a tip that led to a young man by the name of Corey Hammersley, an inmate at an Indiana state prison. He was once a star student and athlete, but got deep into the drug scene at Indiana. One year after Lauren's disappearance, he had a meltdown while high on drugs, which led to him shooting at police. But apparently while incarcerated, Lauren's photo came up on a television, and Hammersley said to another inmate that Lauren OD'd after drinking and doing ecstasy at a house party. He said these unidentified male students were scared and dumped her body in the Ohio River. But with no evidence to support any of these theories, investigators continue to this day to look for new leads. Rob Spear told ABC News, quote, Now it's just all about finding her, getting answers to what happened to her. We know that she didn't just fall off the face of the earth and vaporize. Something happened to our daughter, and we believe that there are people out there that know exactly what happened to our daughter. The Spears were frustrated by the Bloomington police. Rob said, We were not getting information from the police as far as what they were doing and what they were finding, adding that it appeared that their policy was to shut them out. The Bloomington police also refused to release additional surveillance footage of Lauren from the night of June 2nd and the morning of June 3rd. The police chief, Michael Dekoff, declined to sit down with 2020 and said the investigation was still open and that he had given the Spears an update just the day before. He declined to say why he wouldn't release the surveillance videos. I think it's very odd that the men surrounding Lauren on the day of her disappearance lawyered up so quickly. Corey Rossman in particular has a prickly relationship with the Spear family as well as the media anytime they've tried to reach out to him. And if indeed he can't remember anything after having been punched in the face, why is it so difficult for him to just sit down with them and reiterate that fact that he really didn't know what happened? On the other hand, I also find it odd that Lauren's boyfriend, Jesse Wolf, was initially cooperative and then shut the Spear family out with his own wall of lawyers. If he stayed in all night, which his roommate claims he did, what would he have to hide? Is it possible that these affluent college boys were just advised by their families to lawyer up to protect their bright futures and their families' reputations? I think that that's a very strong possibility. When I think about Corey Rossman's involvement and why he's been so reluctant, I do wonder if he was the provider and or the administrator of the drugs. And could these combinations of substances, along with her long QT syndrome, have been fatal? It certainly seems possible, and perhaps that's why he doesn't want to talk. So all in all, I would say that for myself, for the news media, for Lauren's family and their investigators, and just for my fellow IU alumni, I want to know if there's any evidence that Rossman or any of the other boys followed Lauren to the corner of 11th and College Avenue, where she was last seen. The other theories about transient townies seem just as plausible. We know it happens. It happened to Hannah Wilson. But then again, there is no evidence of Messel's involvement with Lauren, and we know that overlinkage is a problem sometimes. If Lauren just vanished from a street corner, it makes sense that she was abducted, most likely by a vehicle. But without any further surveillance footage released by the Bloomington Police Department, who really knows? Why aren't they sharing this information? And while doing research on this episode, it does dawn on me that while I was in college, the Bloomington police absolutely had a reputation for being withholding and untrustworthy. Here is a recent update from the Facebook page run by Lauren's family. 
Lauren has been missing since early Friday morning, June 3rd, and was last seen on 11th Street and College Avenue in Bloomington, Indiana. Words from the posters created after Lauren's disappearance. Those words, still so jarring, still inconceivable. Nine years ago, Lauren vanished into thin air. It's as if it just happened. For nine years, we've followed every lead that has come our way, all either dead ends or lies, not one single step closer to the truth. Most who visit this page already know Lauren's story. Do I think her disappearance was random? No, I do not. Do I think we will ever get to the truth or find Lauren's remains? I don't know. Will we ever stop searching? No, we will not. Will Lauren ever be less a part of our family? No, she will not. We are all so fragile, this inner circle who knew and loved Lauren. No cure for the emptiness Lauren's disappearance has left in our heart. So for those responsible, how lucky you have been. Nine years of dead ends for our family. Nine years of freedom for you. It will not always be that way. I hope that someday, someone will have a crisis of conscience and speak the truth. If not, well, you got away with it. Or did you? Anyone with first-hand knowledge of what happened to Lauren on June 3, 2011, I beseech you please contact us in the following ways. Bloomington Police Department, 812-339-4471. Bo Deedle and Associates, 800-777-9366. Help find Lauren at gmail.com. Find Lauren P.O. Box 1226, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. Hoping today is the day. We love you, Lauren. Mom, Dad, and Rebecca. Okay, and now to end with something beautiful. I wanted to mention the Youth to the People Superfood Cleanser. It's a powerful but gentle daily face wash formulated with cold-pressed antioxidants, including kale, spinach, and green tea. You should use it twice daily in the morning and in the evening to prevent buildup in pores, but wet your face first. All you need is a couple pumps, one to two, on wet hands, and create a light lather and massage onto your face and neck for 30 seconds. Rinse thoroughly and follow with a moisturizer. The ingredients to the superfood cleanser includes kale, which is rich in skin-loving phytonutrients and vitamin C, E, and K. Got spinach, a lightweight skin soother that boasts a high natural moisture content and cooling properties. Green tea, which is an anti-inflammatory oil packed with essential fatty acids, and alfalfa. It's also 100% vegan, made in the USA. There's no animal testing or parabens. Parabens are a family of related chemicals that are commonly used as preservatives and cosmetic products, which prevent the growth of harmful bacteria and mold, which sounds nice, but they can disrupt hormones and they remain in your body tissue long after use, which is super creepy. Think about it. Who wants to put a bunch of preservatives on their skin? No thanks. There is also no phthalates, which are what make plastics soft and pliable, and they're also what is found in synthetic fragrances. They don't have any sulfates, and sulfates are what create lather in products and give you that feeling of cleanliness, but actually it doesn't really do much. 
and these are derived from petroleum, and the production of petroleum is associated with climate change, pollution, and greenhouse gases. Speaking of, the packaging is also recyclable, so it's good for your skin and the environment. I'm a big fan of this one. It smells fantastic. It has a very clean, herbaceous, almost slightly sweet scent. It's like a juice for your face, but really, really excellent. Um, it has a gel texture, and I think this is a great option for you know first thing in the morning and then at night. I wouldn't necessarily plan to remove any makeup with it. Not that I'm saying it can't, but I would do a makeup removal first and then finish off with something like this. But highly recommend. It's a great brand. I really like what they're about, but this, I think, is their probably most popular product, and I can think... My dear friend, Brittany, who um, first introduced it to me. You can find it on their website as well as Sephora. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any tips about the disappearance of Lauren Spear, please contact one of those sources that I mentioned um, at the end of the episode. I want this family to find their daughter. She's a beautiful girl. Nobody deserves to not know. And I think, if anything, they just deserve closure. You can follow Crime and Beauty on Instagram at crimeandbeauty.podcast. You can follow Crime and Beauty on Facebook at Crime and Beauty Podcast. Send me a Gmail at crimeandbeautypodcast at gmail.com. As always, would love to hear your feedback, suggestions, case ideas, anything. And until next time, Thanks for listening and stay beautiful.